This is David Tarkington. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For more information about our church, First Baptist Church of Orange Park, and our network, the First Family Network, go to firstfam.org. You can check out my site at davidtarkington.com. Philippians chapter 1, 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers, the pastors, and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just say, this is a bit of a challenge today. We're doing two verses. That's all we're focusing on, at least initially, as we enter into this book. We uh, have the bookmarks there, and our children's and preschool ministry leaders emailed me and said, okay, seriously, we're doing the greeting. How do we, how do we write questions about the greeting for the children's worship time at home? And, and yet we, we did, and we talked through that. There's something about the greeting in this, this, this salutation, you know, when letters are written today, or at least now they're emails, but back when we used to write paper letters, uh, ink on paper, you would, you would write your dear so-and-so, write the entire letter, and at the end, sincerely, and say who it's from. And in, in the day of when Paul is writing this, you start with who it's from. I guess that's so you know if you want to read the rest of it. I'm not sure, kind of like an email. Uh, it is from Paul. It is from Paul writing with Timothy. Silas is likely there as well, and they are writing it to the church that gathers in the city of Philippi. One of our men emailed me this morning or texted me this morning a great insight I'd never really thought through, and I think this is something worth repeating. In Paul's letters, you'll see you know, Galatians, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, the Thessalonians, uh, the letter to Timothy even. You'll see some, uh, not redundancy, but uh, some, some uh, stylistic things that he uses. And he uses often, if not every time, in his opening greeting, grace to you, grace to you. And we tend to read this, and not only are these two verses just the introduction to a letter, but they tend to get read, or maybe ignored. Just skip through that, let's get to the meat of the story, right? But if you think about it, grace to you, as he writes this, is a declaration of the means of salvation. It is because of the grace of God we can be called Christians. It is because of God's grace that we have the opportunity to respond to Him. It is because of God's grace we are here. And then when he says, in peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, and, and, and I, this is just insightful to me, so I so appreciate this being sent this morning, is that, there we go, the peace from our God and Father is the result of the salvation we have in Christ. So the grace of God gives us salvation, and when you say yes to Jesus Christ and you surrender your life to Him, one of the natural or the, 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 the obvious result of being a child of God is you have access to the peace of God through Jesus Christ within us now. All that through two little statements of introduction. When you read through the, or glance at the rest of the book, you'll notice if your Bible is somewhat like mine, you might have some subtitles in there or some subheadings. Those are not inerrant subheadings. Those are just put there, just like the verse numbers and chapter numbers are placed there by human uh, uh, scholars to help us find things. And in chapter 1, beginning of verse 3, mine says Thanksgiving and prayer beginning next week. We'll talk about that. So what you have at the introduction of the book or the letter to the church at Philippi is a thank you note. And thank you notes are special. If you ever receive a thank you note, a card, or a letter from someone, maybe you went to a party, maybe you showed up during a, uh, at a celebration that was being held in their honor, maybe you gave a gift to someone, or, or maybe you were just present during a difficult time, or you came to mind and they, maybe you sent a message and it was received so well that you receive a thank you card or a thank you email or a thank you text message 
as response. And those thank you messages that are received are unexpected. That's what makes them so special. They're unexpected, and they catch us by surprise. And so we, we like thank you notes. And, and maybe you're like some who, when you, maybe you're a note writer, maybe you're a letter writer, and you, you write notes, and when you do, maybe, you, maybe you're, you're gifted like Linda Lichty, and you write a long thank you note that is, that is not, um, and, and I say this because I, I so appreciate it. It, 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 is, it has written on the front, written on the back, written in the margin, written on the side. She'll write every verse in the Bible that comes to mind. And it's an amazing moment because you receive it and you go, this was, not, this was not done quickly. And God has gifted her to, to be an encouragement to others in that way. Or maybe you lo- you're like others and, and gifted in other ways in, in, in showing your appreciation. My, maybe you're this person that I've tried so hard to become this person that I used to when I would buy cards for loved ones, birthday cards, or the, I would find the, I like the one, you know, with the, the sarcastic dog or the dancing elephant on it or whatever, and I'd get that. And there are times when those are not quite appropriate. So I've learned to read the card before I buy it to make sure that whoever Hallmark paid is saying what I want to say. And then I'll write a little note at the bottom. Or maybe you're you're like my mother-in-law. When she buys cards and sends them to us, she'll buy the card and she will underline the words. You got, you got those? Uh, make sure you know I happy birthday. Got it? All right. So I did a little research, intense research, meaning I went to Google and I asked this question. Examples of thank you cards. And these popped up. They're obviously from children, which make them more fun. These are children who have either been told by their parents that you need to send a thank you card. Your grandma sent you something. Say thank you. This person gave you a gift. Write a card. Or... Um, or maybe their teacher did in class. One of them looks like a classroom project. So here are just some that I found. Here's one. It says, this was written to mom. This is obviously for Mother's Day, I think. Thank you so, five letter O's, so much for being my mom. If I had a different mom, I'd punch her in the face and go find you. I think that's a, that's a, a loving child expressing appreciation in ways that maybe you did not think of. This one, I'm not quite sure. I, I think this one was sent because candy was received and they appreciated the candy but didn't like all of it, so they gave some back as a return gift. Thanks so... There's eight O's on this one. So much for all the awesome candy. We promise our stomachs will treat it nicely. Here's a little treat from us because we know junior mints just aren't that good. Thank you. So apparently they got those sent back. Mama had the little girl write a card to Emily, apparently, for a birthday gift. Thank you, Emily, for my thing. That's it. Aunt Katie, dear Aunt Katie, thank you for the Snoopy snow cone maker. My family barely uses it. I think that's great. There's truth. Here's another Mother's Day card. Thank you, Mom, for making me food so I don't die. And then this is the best one I have ever read ever heard. When I was in, when I was in elementary school, the, the weatherman from the local news channel came to visit our class. And uh, maybe you've had an experience like that. So the meteorologist or the weather, weather man or woman has come by to speak. So apparently Mr. Ramon is the local meteorologist. And so he came to this class. And, uh, and it's kind of like when, when we do uh, our, our school gifts to the different schools we sponsor, sometimes we'll get a, a big old giant envelope full of all the fifth graders or the third graders or the second graders thank you cards. We know that's a little project. 
but they're really interesting to see some of the thank you cards to the church. Uh, I posted some of those. I, I need to keep those and make sure you all can see them. But here's to Mr. Ramon. Thank, uh, dear Mr. Ramon, thank you for coming to our school and teaching us about weather. Someday, when I become Supreme Ultra Lord of the Universe, I will not make you a slave. <laughs> All right, so this gets better. This gets better. I don't know who this kid is or uh, what his parents let him eat but, uh, or drink or smoke or whatever, but it gets better. Um, someday, when I... Oh, I already said that. Someday, I will not make you my slave. You will get to live in my 200-story castle... Pretty nice. ...where unicorns sir, will, will feed you donuts off their horns. I will personally make you a throne that is half platinum and half solid gold and jewel encrusted. Thank you again for teaching us about meteorology. You're more awesome than a monkey wearing a tuxedo out of bacon. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. But I'm, I'm just imagining that and I can't, yeah, I'm done. This may be all I get through today. This is, God's not happy right now, but... Um, you're more, <laughs> that's just the first half, right? So you're more awesome. I'll read that again. You're more awesome than a monkey wearing a tuxedo made out of bacon, riding a cyborg unicorn with a lightsaber for the horn on the tip of a space shuttle, closing in on Mars while engulfed in flames. <laughs> there it is. And then they says, and in case you don't know, that's pretty sweet. <laughs> Sincerely, Flint. P.S. Look on the back for the drawing. And I probably should have scanned it and put it on the screen, but it is a drawing of a guy, a monkey, wearing a bacon tuxedo on the back of a unicorn. Yeah, so there it is. <laughs> this is, uh, children are in here today, right? Good, yeah. I can't wait to see the bulletins left in the pews. All right, so <laughs> Paul's writing a thank you card, and really, while it's not nearly as um, illustrative as that, it is, it is better. It's much better than any of these. The letter that Paul is writing is to the church who are the Christians in Philippi. As you think about first century churches, you notice some things that are unique that are a little different than churches today. First, you don't have a church smaller than a city. So you, it, today you have a church in every street corner in a city. But you have a church at Philippi. You have a church at Ephesus. You have a church in Corinth. The church in a city, while they may have multiple meeting places and venues, they are all unified in the, in the mission to reach the city. We know the mission is... You reach a city, you reach the world, but God has planted them there specifically. You also have some things about Paul that are pretty amazing. Paul puts so much in this letter. What we're doing is we're reading 2,000-year-old mail. We're reading a letter written by Paul to a church, but we're reading a letter not just written by a man, but inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. Therefore, what we're reading is the inerrant Word of God given by the Holy Spirit through Paul to put on paper so we can read it today, making this more than just history and more than just a letter. This is God's Word to us. We think about Paul, who is this Paul guy, Paul, also known as Saul, depending on who was speaking to him and where he was at the time. Uh, his name wasn't changed. It's just a, it's a variation of the same name. So Paul is writing a letter to these Christians in this church. And Paul is a man who is not e leading an easy life. Paul does not have an easy life. He does not have a necessarily fun life. Paul is totally sold out to the Lord at this point, and he has been serving God. Formerly, he was sold out to God, but believing that Jesus didn't believe Jesus was the Son of God, so he was working his dead-level best to destroy the church until Christ redeems him and changes him and saves him. And now this uh, zealous 
uh, religious man trying to destroy the Christian church is now the greatest missionary of the Christian church. It's an amazing story. So he's a missionary. He's a church planter. Even though that's more of a modern term, he literally is going into these towns and these cities and, and he's mentoring young men and he's preaching the gospel and he's raising up pastors and then he's leaving and planting these churches and, and going to the next region. He is a theologian. He is a teacher. These are all wonderful things for a resume if he's looking for a job in a church. But also, we need to remember this, that all the while being a missionary, church planner, preacher, teacher, planner, mentor, pastor... He's getting beaten up as many times as, as you can find throughout the book of Acts. He gets beaten up. He gets stoned in a first century version with rocks thrown at him, in case you don't know what that means. They're trying to kill him. He gets shipwrecked. He gets bitten by a poisonous snake. He's abandoned. He's jailed and more. So sometimes when we're reading this letter, we forget that here is Paul writing from a place of, of deep, perhaps pain and struggle, while also showing his great appreciation for the church and all that they do for him and their thanks to the church, his thanks to the church to get through the next day. I think that all of us at some point can relate to Paul at some level. Uh, he's a strong man for, sur for sure. He, he is one we can look up to. He's not a perfect man. He's not a perfect man in any stretch of the imagination. He's like us. This is a man who uh, sinned. Here's a man who made mistakes. Here's a man that at times would choose unwisely. Here's a man that unintentionally hurt people's feelings. I don't know if you've ever been in that world. Here's somebody that intentionally hurt some people's feelings. Here's a guy who had his feelings hurt. Here's a guy that got so frustrated at some point, he told John Mark to get out of here and don't come back. Until later when he said, come on back. Here's a guy that had regret at some point. Here's a human being, not, an not a perfect Son of God, this is Paul, like us, chosen by God for His glory, who has so much more in, in common with us than perhaps we even realize. He's a man who's hurt people and been hurt by people, and he's a human being. And we can look at this man of God and see God's grace abound through him. And the wisdom that he gives us in this letter and the other letters in the New Testament are more than just a good pastor's words to live by. These are the inspired words of God given through his Holy Spirit to his servant Paul for his church and for God's own glory. And as we look at this this week and the following week, the weeks to come, we're going to see Paul's response to one specific church, the church in Philippi, this church who came to give him gifts while he was in dire straits. As we go through this letter, there is a something in one of the commentaries I was reading, it had this, this subheading. It said, the relevance of Philippians to the church today. Relevance. Now, relevance is a word that really kind of, it's one of those buzzwords in, in Christian life that kind of gets to me at times because it's so misused. Um, it's the statement of, of, uh, of, of the Bible being relevant. Let me, let me just go ahead and declare this, make sure I say this as clear as I can. There is not a pastor out here that makes the Bible relevant. There's not a church that makes the Bible relevant. Your Sunday school teacher does not make the Bible relevant. You cannot make the Bible relevant. The Bible is relevant because it's the Bible. And human, into, human creativity, human presentation, connecting and, and conversation, yeah, you can make some stories connect, but no human being makes the inerrant Word of God relevant, for it has always been and always will be relevant. For in the message of the Scriptures, you have the story of rescue and, res and restoration and redemption. And that's the message that every human being has needed since the beginning of the human story. 
That's why it's relevant. It's relevant because God is relevant. We don't make God relevant. We live in the world of, of, of evangelical Americanism, which is an interesting thing when you, if you kind of back away and do a, a world history study and just a, not even history, just a world study of religion and see where we are in America today with our version of Christianity and, and, and trying very diligently to stay true to the Word of God and to do this well and to do it right, knowing and realizing that all of us have been raised in a, in a subculture that probably did it wrong to some level or some extreme. And so we're trying to make sure we don't just do what we've always done. We want to make sure whatever we do, if we're going to build our faith on what we do, which we probably shouldn't do it anyway, that we're focusing on the Word of God. So what you have is you have churches all over cities, just like we do, who, who outwardly say the right things like this. Well, we're all working for kingdom growth and we're all on the same team and we're working together. Yeah, I get it. You get it. I believe it. But once you dig down a little deeper, you realize there's a little bit of, 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 of uh, a little uh, marketing strategy of competition, a little Coke and Pepsi going on right here. You know, we're all selling the same thing, but we'd rather you buy our version than theirs. And we're going to be held accountable for that sinful perspective at some level. You'll have churches that pop up and they'll say, hey, yeah, it's worth you driving by eight valid, solid churches that preach the gospel to get to ours because ours is better. Well, it's probably not better. Maybe you're connecting better with certain individuals, but to market yourself that way, I think, is wrong. And I'll also go ahead and just say it this way. Since I'm ranting, I'll just keep on. There is this tendency to try to make the church relevant to the culture today. Making the church relevant let me just say that most churches that are intent on making the church relevant, there, there are some things that need to happen in church. I'll give you this. If the church, if your Sunday school class, if your philosophy of ministry, if your understanding of what the church is here for and what it's supposed to do is built on reaching people that died 40 years ago, then there's no way you're going to reach people that are alive today because they don't exist anymore. I mean, there are churches that have great strategies for church growth, but they're focused on people that don't exist on the planet anymore. They worked in the 50s. They've worked in the 80s. But strategies change. So strategies can change. When we were at Oak Harbor Church, when we went out to our, our, our church that we're mentoring and we're, we're growing with and we're trying to lead through some change, they invited us in about a year and a half ago. Tracy and I went over there and had a, had a, a meeting with the membership of the church. The church had been through some difficult times. They had a moral failing in their pastor. And so you had leadership uh, void and, and you had financial void. And you had people leaving. And it was just... Un, under, uh, unfortunately, it was typical of what we see in many churches. The, it, we have right now probably 25, 30 people attending regularly. They're godly people. We love them. We are ministering with them, not just to them. And Brian Hoffman and Brian Borden are doing a, a bang-up job out there just systematically doing this. But if you back up to when I first went out there and Pastor Drace was there, and we went out to have this town hall meeting with the membership, it was the, the understanding. They'd finally gotten to the point. Here's the old adage, right? No, no church is going to change the way they do anything until the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of change. And it finally got to the point where the pain of staying the same was greater because the money was running out of the bank account. They were going to have to shut the doors if nothing happened. And so they realized we've got to do something. So we had this real honest meeting. And I asked, and I shared what we would do. We would come in, we'd try to revitalize some areas. We'll take it slow. We'll change some things. We'll not change some other things. And they had questions about change. And one of the big questions they had was a question that you would have. They don't, you know, we, we look around the room, we realize there's only about 25 of us. And by the way, we can look around the room here today and realize there's a lot more green pews than there are people sitting in them. It's the same questions. And the big questions are, are you going to change our Sunday school? Are you going to change our music? 
And there was this whole thing, well, you're probably young. They, they still thought I was young, so I like hanging out out there. Um, but this, this is not Clairol, I'm telling you. This is the real hair color. So not young as I used to be. And they said, well, you know, you probably don't like hymns. Here's the reality. You may not know this. I love hymns. I really do love hymns. Those are the ones I remember. So I'm not anti-hymn. I'm also not anti-praise and worship. I'm not so much on 7-Eleven songs, but nevertheless, that's seven words 11 times through. Anyway, um, I like songs that have the correct theological understanding and meaning. I mean, you know, just because Jesus Culture sings it doesn't mean I want it on my, on my CD player. But just because Gaither sings it doesn't mean it's biblical either, just so you know. Um, you need to know your words. You need to know what they mean. Nevertheless, I did tell them this. I said, I'm not anti-hymns. I'm not anti-new music. I'm just really against really bad worship. And that's what we have right out here. We can do better. And then the questions came, and it came very honest at that point. And I asked this question. I said, how many of you have grandchildren? All the hands went up. I said, how many of you have had grandchildren who would never come to a church like this? And their hands stayed up. And I said, that's where we are. When we are satisfied with a church that meets our needs and we don't care about the next generation and our own family won't worship with us, we might want to ask our questions. Is this a church that glorifies God or just placates my need for a spiritual gathering once a week? See, the church is meant to be intergenerational, multi-generational. The family equipping model that we are stepping into is going to be a challenge. I threw this out at 8 o'clock. I'll just go ahead and throw it out here now. The family equipping model of ministry is more than a model. It's a lifestyle. It's a mentality. It's the DNA of who we are. And I would dare say that we're not there yet because none of us grew up with that. Most of us grew up with churches that had youth groups and children's ministries, and we want to make sure they have really big groups that we can dump our kids in. They do great events and have a lot of fun, and we do too. But we understand that the greatest disciple-making strategy we could have for the next generation to ensure we don't lose them is that when moms and dads are equipped to be the primary disciple-makers. Because whoever's in charge of the church ministry won't be there forever anyway. And you'll probably be related to your kids for most of your life. Studies have shown. Therefore, we're in a very unique position. Because most of the churches that I know that are really desiring to do the family equipping of ministry are, are, doing, are, are desiring it from the youth minister and children's minister's perspective. And their roadblock is their senior pastor. Well, here's, I'm coming at it this way. I'm the senior pastor. And I'm saying, this is what we're going to do. This isn't from the bottom up. This is from me. This is saying, we've got to do this. Or we're going to miss a generation or two. And we're going to find ourselves sitting around saying, what church can come by and help us survive? Now listen, there are great days ahead. But here's what family equipping means. If you're in a senior adult Sunday school class and you keep hearing all this and you're going, yeah, that's good stuff, that'll impact them. If you don't realize it impacts you, then we've already lost. If it's not impacting your Sunday school class, your small group, your family structure, single adult, married adult, no kids, grandkids, then you've already, if if it's not impacting you, we're already lost. So we've got to make sure we do this well. When Paul writes to this church in Philippi, he's saying, Your church is relevant because of who God is. God is relevant. There you go. Front row seat. All right. 
Here's what I believe. When churches say, we want to make the church relevant, what they're really saying at times in their marketing and on their strategies and on their websites is, we want to make the church palatable. And let me declare this. Palatable Christianity is weakened because it removes everything that matters to make us holy. Relevant Christianity is redundant. You got it? Relevant Christianity is redundant because Christianity in and of itself is relevant because of who Christ is. And the letter that we read in Philippians is clearly relevant to us today. Here's how I ask this this question. How is Philippians relevant to us today? Let me ask this. Do you think Christians today face opposition? I think so. Whether in the workplace or in the public forum or even in their own families, I don't think we face any more opposition than the early church did. I think they faced a lot more as they're writing from prison. But nevertheless, we face opposition. Do you think Christians today struggle with experiencing joy? I think we do. If there's a subtext of the book of Philippians, it's this. Joy is available and it's your choice. Choose it. Joy is not this giddy happiness that you're laughing all the time necessarily. You can have joy in the midst of deep grief. You can have joy while things are not working too well around you. Paul is sitting in a prison cell and he is experiencing joy, but I'm not certain that he's going, this is exactly what I hoped it would end up like. Joy is a contentment in the midst of that. That's what we'll get through in the next few weeks. Here's another reason that I ask this, because we're saying Philippians is about holiness, it's about unity, it's about joy. Is it possible? Could it be that there are Christians who really know Jesus Christ, who have surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ, and they've even joined the same church, and they know they're going to spend eternity in heaven, probably living right next to each other, but they have decided they don't like the other Christians here on earth, and so they leave their church to find another church, or they leave their service to go to another service, just so they don't have to look eye to eye at the other people who know the same Jesus they do, because our human nature divides us, does not unite us. I think that's a reality. Here's another one. Do people today struggle with meaning and purpose in life? Christians. Do Christians struggle with meaning and purpose and just the energy to get through another day? You see, this week we've had a lot of things on the news. Uh, Celebrities and famous people who have passed away. We had Senator John McCain's funeral was on the news this week. You may have watched that. You had Aretha Franklin's service, a six-hour service. It was on television. You may have seen some of that. And, and as you think about these moments, these individuals who have passed on and the services to remember their lives, there was another person who died this past week. I didn't know this man. I don't know this man. I don't know his family. But because I live in the Christian subculture, this is a story that probably isn't floating around on Politico or, or uh, CNN or Fox News or in MSNBC or whatever one you, wherever you get your stories. Maybe it is, but I, I saw it in a Christian news agency. This guy's name is, uh, let me get it right, Andrew Stecklin. I don't know Andrew. He looks like he's in his 30s, maybe early 40s at the most. Uh, from the Christian subculture where we elevate pastors and make them out to be really cool guys, he was knocking it out of the park. Pastor of a mega church in California. Had a great website, live worship, incredible church, a lot of people. Mega means what? What's a mega church? At least 2,000 attendees on a weekly basis, so that's what you're getting. And, and he had a, a beautiful young wife and I think three children, which are all little stair-step kids, right? Little guys. But last week, he took his life. 
And the Christian world has been kind of shocked at this going, how can a guy that in the Christian subculture of pastoral ministry, where sometimes Christians unfortunately elevate pastors to this level and idolize them and say, make this celebrity aspect, how could a guy that on, online seems to have everything going on and in, in the church world seems to doing it, be doing it well, what is it that leads to a point of depression and, and, and even has his wife declared depression and mental illness that led him to the point of making this decision? I don't have easy answers for this. I'm not saying if he'd have just read Philippians, he'd have been okay, because I promise you, he probably had read Philippians. What I'm saying is that there is an enemy attack among Christians in this world today, just like there has always been, and so the Christian world is not easy, and just because we're, you're a Christian doesn't mean life is going to be smooth, doesn't mean everything's going to work out this side of heaven. And sometimes we buy into the lies, and sometimes we feed the lies. I don't know. Here's an article I I read. I I saw this last week. There are these college students, these three young men that have taken their college. I don't know what universities he's at. I couldn't find it today. I was looking for it. But they are are fasting from Instagram, the the social media app. I'm not anti-Instagram. I'm on Instagram, Twitter. I mean, I'm not anti any of that at this point. It's just a tool. But let me just kind of explain something to you. These guys said, we're going to take the semester off from Instagram because studies have shown that it creates depression among students. I don't know where these studies are, but I started thinking about that. So I found this article by a young mom. She blogged this, and it's been shared. Here's what she wrote when she said, I'm I'm leaving the social media world. She's still blogging, but she's off of social media. She said, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, it creates a fake world. It's a world where things aren't real. We tell lies about ourselves and believe in something we're not because the world we are exposed to is a world that ultimately leads to that ugly comparison game. The things that get posted are the perfect pictures, the, the, the great things in life. We post about our accomplishments and boast on the things we're better at than everybody else. We rarely post pictures of ourselves when our days are terrible or when you, we lose a pet or when someone we love leaves. And if we do, we do so just to gain a few pity likes on our pay, postings. That's a pretty extreme thing. I'm not declaring that's what everyone does, but there is this sense there's this perfect world out there and everybody else is living it except me. And it's an insta-lie is what it is. It's not true. I mean, post pictures of your kids, this, that, and the other, but you know, the fact of the matter is some people gain great depression and fall into this because they feel like I'm just not doing enough. Everyone else is doing so great. Well, I think that what, that's what makes Philippians so relevant for us today. Because we're facing the very same things that the people that Paul wrote to were facing. Do you have deep and encouraging friendships? I hope you do. But let's just go ahead and declare it what it is. Nobody can have more than 12 continual ones. I don't think. And out of 12, you can probably only keep up with three or four. And just because 500 friends on Facebook are your friend doesn't mean they're really your friend. People collect friends just like we used to collect coins. But they're not real. Some are, but others aren't. And I read this letter and I see the humanity of Paul coming through this. And I'm reminded of how God uses a flawless Paul, a flawed Paul, to speak to a flawed world. This flawless God does. And in this inspired writing, it gives us insight. So let me give you just a brief little bit of history and then we'll wrap it up. Paul is with Silas. They're on a missionary journey. They connect with a guy named Timothy, young man. Timothy is from a family where his mother is Jewish and his father is Greek. And so he has come from a mixed marriage uh, family, religiously. 
Don't have any indication his father's a believer, his mother was a believer, and led him in the understanding what it meant to follow Christ. And Paul sees him and, is in, and says, I want you to hang out with me. Paul takes him with him. And so you got Paul, Silas, Timothy, you got this little missionary team going on. They're doing missionary work. And here's what happens in Acts 16. Let me read this quickly. You can kind of see how they get to Philippi. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia and having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. I don't know if you caught that, but here's what it says. They had a plan and God said no. Verse 7, and when they had come to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to. No. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia standing there urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. This isn't a dream. This is a dream God's given him. And verse 10 says, when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Here's a, just to remind you, let me just go ahead and throw this one out there. This is why we do any mission we do. We don't go to give shoebox gifts. We don't go to give new shoes to kids in orphanages. We don't go to give Christmas gifts. We don't go to give food to hungry people. We're not going anywhere just to dig a well. All that's good. We'll do all of that stuff. But if that's your mission, you've just joined the Peace Corps and God bless you. When we're on mission, we're on mission for one purpose. To preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And quit using the falsely attributed statement that says preach the gospel at all times and if necessary use words. Augustine never said that. Always use words. Tell people that you are proud to be a follower of Jesus Christ and how they can join you in that journey. Nevertheless, that's why they went on mission. Verse 11, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. We're having a test on this. Hope you remember these names. Following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, there we finally landed in Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. Philippi, the church in Philippi is the first church planted in Europe. This is the beginning of the European Christian movement right here. And it's not all fun for Paul and Silas and Timothy. If you read through the rest of the passages, you'll realize they're writing this letter from prison. Who picks that as their vacation, their strategy, their plan? I don't have time to get into all of this, but let me just say it wasn't fun. And if you look at some of the great missionaries in history, you'll realize that some of them did not end up where they planned to be. Adoniram Judson is a good one. William Carey thought it would be a little easier than that. I dare say that, uh, that um, the guys that, that were killed in Ecuador by the um, Jim Elliott and the others that were killed did not intend that to be the end of their story here on earth. But for God's glory, they went where he was calling them. The world does not celebrate the church. The church has a PR problem, I will give you that. The church has a major PR problem. It's not with the culture. The culture is supposed to hate us, okay? They're never going to get on board. We tried to give free pencils to people at Patterson Elementary last Monday at an open house as the church. We weren't even baiting and switching. We weren't even saying, here's a pencil if you'll pray a prayer. We weren't pulling that gag. We, weren't, we didn't even say, give us your name and information. We just said, here's a pencil. A box of free pencils. Who wouldn't take pencils? I mean, there are certain things you ought to be able to give people and they just say, yeah, I need that. Like light bulbs, pencils, toilet paper. They ought to take that stuff, right? But no, people avoided our table. Because, and one guy said, no, we won't take anything from a church. No. I'm like, all right. Well, when your kid needs a pencil, don't come crying. That's what I was thinking, but I didn't say that. <laughs> Hope he uses one of those with the lead breaks every time. Maybe there. That's not what Jesus would say. That's what I've said. But nevertheless, in my head, I didn't say it. 
But the church does have a PR problem, not with the world, but the church has a PR problem within the church. The letter introduces us to a message of hope, thankfulness, and unity in Christ. These are things we know to be true, but sometimes we forget. Man, we're forgetful people. I am a forgetful people, a person. And, and ultimately, this joy that is expected, I don't always have this. So I read a letter written by a guy who did not plan to know the people that he's writing to because he never intended to go to Philippi. But he became good friends with the people in Philippi. And he wrote the letter while in prison. And he wrote it, a guy who should not have expertise in unity and thankfulness and joy. But he did. Why? Because of God's grace and God's peace. So three things to walk away from this with. God has a mission and his mission has a plan. God's mission has a plan. When God, you ever heard that little phrase? When God shuts a door, what does it go? Yeah. So I'm gonna, there, there's, a, there's this, when God shuts a door, he opens another, or he opens a window, this, that, and the other. You know. Let me give you the biblical version of that, so we'll quit saying that version. When God closes a door, just sit still, quit trying to find another way out. It doesn't rhyme, doesn't look good on a t-shirt, but that's the answer. When God closes a door, stop! And just, just stop! And quit trying to climb out a window. Quit looking for another door. Because when God closes a door, He wants you to stop. And then when it's time, He'll lead you where He desires you to be. Paul says, well, we intended to go to here, there, and the other place, but God wouldn't let us preach the gospel in Asia at this time. Boom! So we decided to go here and there, and God said no. Boom! So we ended up just sitting there going, okay, what are we going to do? I don't know. I think I'll go to sleep. God gave me a dream. We're going to Macedonia. That's how the story plays out. And to God's glory, they were obedient. God's mission has a plan. Let me just say this. Hmm. Your plan and my plan is never God's plan. Not initially. Why? Because we make plans where we succeed. We make plans where we end up winning. We make plans where we make the sale. We make plans where it's a bit easier. We make plans where we get through well. We make plans where it's Instagrammable and fun. We make plans that somehow involve a weekend at Disney or the beach or the mountains or with friends. Our plans get our kids into nice schools where they're loved and are popular and invited to parties. Our plans leave us in a nice neighborhood where we don't have to do the 9 o'clock routine. Our plans make us look really good to others so that they might be just a bit jealous. But we may be saying, that's not me. That's not what I do. Well, if you're not human, perhaps. But human nature leads us to that. That's our default setting. Every person. Even the greatest missionaries in history did not plan to end up how they ended up. But through their obedience, God directed their steps. I doubt William Carey would have said, expect great things for God, attempt great things for God, if he'd have known what that meant initially. I'm not quite sure Jim Elliott would have flown to Ecuador without a little more protection than he had if he'd have known how that would have ended. But he was trusting the Lord in the midst. God does have a plan. It's a perfect plan. It's a providential plan. And God's plan always brings him glory and you good. And not everybody God is calling is going to have to move overseas to preach to native peoples in other lands. Not every Christian is called to get a passport, but every Christian is called. No Christian is called to safety. No Christian is called to an easy life. No Christian is called by God for their own glory. No, it doesn't work that way. And it's appropriate we see this after last week's study on the Great Commission. 
So God's mission has a plan. God's mission has a church. We often say, well, God's church has a mission. No, no, not really. God's mission has a church. God plants his church where he desires the mission to be fulfilled. God's mission has a church, and that church is full of many people like Paul and Silas and Lydia and Timothy and you and me. You're not here accidentally. You're here because he has a mission. And God's mission has a person. And that person is a man, and that person is God, and that person is Jesus Christ. And that person is why we're here. That's why, as Paul said, and we went there with the intent to preach the gospel. Everything we go, everywhere we go, everything we do, every group we join, every club we're a part of, is there, hopefully, as a Christian, with the intent of preaching the gospel on mission 24-7.